The first day of the week always brings such a delightful opportunity to assemble and worship. It, in fact, provides a moment of ease from the cares, or in many ways, the other matters that so often can cloud our day. Because that first day of the week, unlike any other, directs our attention to what is far beyond what takes place upon this planet. It's good for us to be together today and good to see this number with us. The title I've chosen for the lesson this morning is the one you can see behind me on the wall in front of you. It has to do with who or what to follow. This particular lesson, as this opening slide will indicate, surrounds the topic of authority. And it does so in light of some very pertinent observations. Is it not true that one of the most basic, one of the most fundamental decisions that every person has to address and to make is, what about the source of authority that I shall follow in my course through life? When it comes to matters that are spiritual, matters religious, matters otherwise that you see are not merely issues connected to the matters of the day. May I suggest every person makes some element of decision concerning that, and aren't we thankful that we can devote a few moments today to thinking not only about that topic, but to be reminded of how critical it is. You'll notice about the middle of that slide that who or what to follow. Every one of us will need to ask of ourselves that matter. But as we do so, could I perhaps introduce the lesson by looking at the first one? There are five of them we shall consider over the course of the lesson this morning. The first is the conscience. Isn't it true that there are many of the individuals living in our world who are quite happy and it seems in many ways quite confident to merely follow their thinking, their conscience with regard to matters following God or not? Well, may I suggest that kind of thing is worthy of some thought. Because after all, many are not only strongly of the opinion that this is okay, but they quite frankly will be sometimes aggressive concerning it. I've helped you define with me the concept, what is the conscience of a person? One statement is the one I've asked you to consider with me on that slide. The conscience, you see, is merely that facility that God has given to each of us that allows us to approve or to condemn our actions in light of our value system. Now, you may want to think about that for just a moment. As a person grows up, that person will come to appreciate some element of a value system. And then, as you proceed in later life, act either in accordance with or in disaccordance with. The conscience is what will disturb you if you act in disaccordance with it or it will approve you if you act in harmony with it. No wonder in that idea or in that connection, it will strongly have relation to feelings, perspective. Maybe you and I know of some individuals who, quite frankly, are happy to approach the matters of the greatest import based on what they feel. I feel that it's all right. I've always felt that it's okay, and perhaps in light of that, to proceed on that kind of appreciation. As you and I approach the middle of that slide, though, may I suggest that although the conscience is that facility given to us by God, it is worthwhile, though, to ask in what sense that value system to which the conscience relates 
How is that value system trained? And in what sense is it ordered correctly? Let's look at a few examples from the Bible and see if, in fact, the conscience is always a safe and trustworthy guide or reliability. You'll notice there near the bottom, why don't we consider the Apostle Paul for just a moment. I've asked you to note a few verses, the first of which is Acts chapter 23. Note with me verse number 1, if you would, of that chapter. Acts chapter 23, verse number 1. Now in this particular instance, Paul makes a rather dramatic statement about the conscience. And he does so in light of his own behavior. Allow me to read it, and then let's devote a few moments of attention to the thought. But Paul there notes, Paul earnestly beholding the council said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Now might you and I reflect upon the notion of what Paul just said. At the time Paul made this statement, he said, All my life I have lived in all good conscience. Now you and I remember that there was quite a difference in Paul's life beginning on that moment on the road to Damascus. As it's recorded in Acts chapter 9, of course there the Lord Jesus spoke to him. But prior to that time, we remember that Paul was a rather notable offender. He was a rather notable opponent to the church. In fact, he himself said in Acts 26 verses 9 through 11, Turn over just three chapters and listen to Paul's own description of his life prior to the events of Acts chapter 9. Paul asserted, I verily thought within myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, which thing I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints did I shut up in prison having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I gave my voice against them. And I punished them oft in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme and being exceedingly mad against them. I persecuted them even unto strange cities. So as you and I reflect upon Paul's character of life, he said, back in that day, I verily thought many things I ought to do against Jesus of Nazareth. I persecuted those people who followed Him. I persecuted those people who were devoted followers of Jesus. In fact, in every city He said, I persecuted them. Furthermore, He pointed out that when it came time to put them to death, I gave my voice against them. In other words, Paul stood up and affirmed that their crimes were worthy of death and he gave his assent, he gave his matter of judgment that they ought to be put to death. And yet that same man later would become a Christian. He obeyed the gospel in Acts 9 verse 20. And thus he nonetheless could say, even when I was persecuting the church, I did it in good conscience. Even when I was putting the followers of Jesus Christ to death, I did it in good conscience. He even admitted, I have lived in good conscience unto this day. But isn't it now true? He was wrong. All that while and all that time when he was persecuting Jesus as an imposter, persecuting the followers of Christ as fakes, all the while they were the ones right. He was the one wrong. Doesn't that indicate our conscience cannot be the sole trustworthy guide? There has to be something besides this. 
there has to be something else. For example, did you notice the last verses I've invited you to consider with me? One of them was the lesson text that Brother Lester read earlier today in our hearing. That famous passage in Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. In other words, what looks to be the matter of choice, what looks to be a life that perhaps is well to select and choose, and yet it'll lead me to hell. It will lead me to no place in the right standing before God. Now Solomon wrote that a long time ago. I've always thought it's rather remarkable that the same verse is repeated verbatim two chapters later. Proverbs 16.25 It's as if he wants to make sure we didn't miss it. There is a way that seemeth right to a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Oh, how strongly you and I need to give heed to the principle behind a passage like that one. But may I say it isn't the only one. In Jeremiah 17, 9, here the prophet Jeremiah was urged to write and to share these thoughts with the God of, that God had shared with him. Listen to his description of the human heart. The heart is deceitful, deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Did you notice what was affirmed? Can the heart be deceived? In other words, you might suppose and think that this is appropriate and right and acceptable, but in fact it's not. God re reminded the people of the ancient day that the conscience is not a safe guide by itself. It is not a trustworthy and reliable guide by itself, and thus our first source of authority that many might select to consider, we have to realize there's no wisdom in solely following this one. What about another one? What else might be true even aside from the thought of the conscious? Consider with me a moment family religion. Family religion. The whole thought, of course, of family religion is this, and you and I know it well, that the strength and the ties and the familiarity that goes with the religion of family can be so very strong. Dad and mom, you see, in the mind of many, could not have been wrong. Granddad and grandma simply could not have been wrong. I watched too many times them to proceed to participate in certain activities or events, and I witnessed the way that they lived their life. Grandma and grandpa, aunts and uncles, they just couldn't have been wrong. And therefore, I'm going to be what I am because of what they were, and that's good enough for me. Now, that's a story that you and I perhaps have heard, and it's something we've seen manifested in the lives of many. I would just invite us for a few minutes to ask, is that the ultimate source of authority? Should you and I place the absolute nature of all of our eternity on dad and mom, grandma and grandpa, as well-intentioned as they might have been, and no doubt as earnest and honest as they might have been, Let's ask a slightly different question. What about the authority which the Word of God would in, in, assert or at least admonish upon us? Let's look at a few principles and then some examples. As we begin with these principles, I've in, simply invited all of us to contemplate this. There's no doubt. There is a very strong tendency in the mind of most people to have respect for what dad and mom did 
for what has been the religion of my family, maybe for generations. Look at some of these verses. In Acts 7 verse 51, Stephen stood up on that day and gave a powerful sermon. And as a part of it, upon reaching near its conclusion, verse 51, he pointed out that they were zealously following the tradition of their fathers. In fact, Stephen said, just as your fathers did, so too do you. They were following in the traditions of their forefathers. Did you notice though what they were doing? They were about to pick up rocks and stone Stephen to death. That's exactly what their forefathers had done to the prophets centuries earlier. And Stephen pointed out to them, just like your forefathers did, you're doing it. And he was about to speak his last breath. They were about to kill him. Again, might we note, sometimes forefathers can be wrong. Sometimes they can be misled, misguided, misinformed. In addition to that example from the life of Stephen, what about Paul as another example of this one? He himself would say in Galatians 1.14, in light of his upbringing, remember, Paul was a devoted Jew. He had grown up at the feet of Gamaliel, one of the most highly regarded rabbis in all of the Jewish history. Acts 22.3 tells us a bit about him. Paul said, I was more zealous of the traditions of my fathers than all of my contemporaries. Galatians 1.14 So in other words, Paul said, my colleagues, those that went to rabbi school, those that were learned Jews, I excelled beyond even them following the traditions of my fathers. And yet, as you and I just learned a few moments earlier, he was wrong for the vast majority of his life. Although he lived in good conscience, he was wrong. Family religion wasn't good enough, you see. It did not make him in right standing with the God of heaven. Maybe one more appreciation. 1 Peter 1.18 Isn't it significant that there the Apostle Peter points out we are not redeemed from our sins by following the tradition of our fathers. We are not that's a mouthful, isn't it? Regardless how well-intentioned mother or father or grandparents or other family members might have been, we certainly hope that their direction in life religiously was the right direction and that it was consistent with the Word of God. But even then, you and I simply shouldn't be a Christian just because they were. Our faith must run deeper than that. For that reason, at the bottom of that slide, I believe it fair to call to mind some of the statements from the lips of Jesus Himself. He that loveth father or mother, son or daughter, husband or wife more than me, is not worthy of me. Now the Lord on that occasion taught that if you love son or daughter, dad or mom, or other family member more than you love Him, then you're not worthy of Him. You see, the Lord demands that He be top priority. Matthew 6 verse 33 said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. As far as family religion, that is not a wise source of authority to rest one's full eternity upon simply what parents or others may have done. As you and I have just noted, parents could be mistaken. They might be misled. They could be ill-informed. 
Certainly, conscience and family religion is not a safe guide. What about a third one? What else can sometimes serve as a source of authority, but is certainly worthy of some thought? I've chosen one word and description of it, the majority. Isn't it so that we quite often find a great deal of pleasure and comfort in numbers? Now, realize in time of war, you'd rather be on the side that has a million men as opposed to the side that only has a hundred thousand. We understand that. But we aren't talking about warfare here, at least directly. We're talking about, again, one's connection to the God of heaven and the condition of one's spirit. Can you and I trust the majority to always be right? Can we trust the majority to give us sound and solid advice and counsel in regard to faithfully serving the God of heaven? I believe the answer to that is so easily known, but we again would do well to let the Word of God speak to some examples regarding it. The majority? Why don't we go to the top and recall Exodus 23.2. Even in the days of that law of Moses, God through Moses admonished the children of Israel like this, Thou shalt not follow a multitude to do evil. You see, there may well be the majority involved in something that's evil. Don't you follow them. Don't follow the majority. Isn't it so that that little warning, of course, will find echoes all throughout the Word of God, not the least of which will be a host of explicit examples, not just verses of reminder. Why don't we weave a journey through part of the Old Testament, and then we'll do the same for the New, and just think about some episodes wherein the following of God and ask, was it the majority or was it a relative few who were doing it right? Consider the days of Noah. As we arrive at Genesis chapter 6, we remember that the planet had now been in existence for 1,656 years. The human family had grown on the planet. The time came, God said in Exodus, and rather Genesis 6 verse 5, the thoughts of men's hearts are only evil continually. And there's that bright spot in verses 8 and 9 of that same chapter where Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And not many verses later we read this. Eight souls were saved. Eight. That's it. Everybody else died in the flood. Everyone else lost their life in that great deluge known as the flood. We don't know exactly what the population of the planet was at that time. It seems safe to say, given the long lifespans of that day and time, that it had to at least be in the tens of thousands. And of that number, eight were saved. May I ask, was the majority saved or was it only the few? The Bible's clear, isn't it? But go just a few chapters later to Genesis 19. You might recall that in the chapter just previous to that, Abraham was involved in a negotiating arrangement with God because God had informed him that Sodom was going to be destroyed. Abraham took the liberty of trying to bargain. Suppose there's 45 righteous people in Sodom. Will you still destroy it? God said, no. Well, God, suppose there's 40 righteous. Will you still destroy it? And God said, no. Suppose there's 35 and God said, no. 
the number finally is whittled all the way down to ten. If there's ten righteous folk in Sodom, will you still destroy it? God said, no. And in the next chapter, Sodom was destroyed. The lesson clear is this. There wasn't even ten righteous people there. Not even ten. We again don't know the population of Sodom, but it's clear it was a lot. Was the majority saved? They weren't. The majority was lost. Lot and his daughters are the only ones that made it out alive. Even Lot's wife turned around and was turned to a pillar of salt. Isn't it interesting that Jesus Himself would say in Luke 17, 32, Remember Lot's wife. There's a great deal to learn from her mistake. So there's two episodes. The majority wasn't saved. What if we go a little further? When the children of Israel were in Egyptian bondage, we of course remember that in Exodus 1, they were mightily blessed by God and their number exploded. In fact, when they left Egypt, there were 603,550 fighting men. Now that doesn't count all the men, and it doesn't count the women, and it doesn't count the children. But among the men that were able to fight, age 20 years old and upward, there were 603,550. Numbers chapter 1, verse 46. And yet, as you and I then look at the scenes of their entrance into Canaan, 40 years later, how many of that number entered into Canaan? How many? Two. Joshua and Caleb. Two out of 603,550. Was the majority saved? They were not. The point is, I believe the Bible would quickly urge us to be very careful about trusting the majority because their wisdom so far has not been sound and their wisdom has not been correct. Perhaps one more. Joshua, rather, Jeremiah 5 verse 1. We now have arrived approximately 800 years later than the events that we have just studied. 800 years since again they entered into the promised land, but now we remember a number of things have happened, but yet there still is this interesting observation. God told Jeremiah, You search with diligence through Jerusalem and see if you can find one righteous man. Doesn't that indicate there wasn't even one at that point? Apparently, Jeremiah was it. One. One more time, the majority was lost. The majority was not right with God. The majority was not a safe and sound source, a repository of wisdom. May you and I learn the lesson well. The majority is not safely to be trusted. As far as the New Testament examples, what did Jesus say in Matthew 7, beginning in verse 13? Fairly early in His public ministry, Jesus hit the ground with such a strong message that read like this, Enter ye in at the straight gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth into life, and few there be that find it. The many versus the few... Jesus said the many are traveling the straight road to hell. Few are traveling the narrow road to heaven. The Lord said that, not you or me. The Lord said it. And isn't it interesting in Luke 13, 24, someone had the nerve to directly ask Jesus, will there few be saved? 
And the Lord said, yes. That's what He said. All you and I are then attempting to do is merely to put fully in the forefront of our mind the fact that the majority surely is not to be trusted. I'm reminded of Romans 8.31, aren't you? If God be for us, who can be against us? Oh, we may be far outnumbered on earth, but that doesn't matter. We may be far exceeded in, in numbers upon earth, but that's not the critical point. The critical point is, if we are on God's side, we're the victors. And we're the ones who thus have the blessedness and the pleasure and all the benefits to look forward to. So far, we have noted three. Conscience, family religion, and now the majority, none of which are safe sources of authority. What about a fourth one? Another one that certainly is worthy of our consideration as well. Creeds. Throughout the course of history, on several occasions, it has been an effort on the part of men to comprise a document. And although it may well be that when they comprised it, they were not considering it as a creed, generations afterward have come to view it so. And sometimes these creeds have come to carry great weight, great authority, so you can read sometimes about the Philadelphia Confession of Faith. That's a well-respected creed, and several religious folk upon earth will in fact give great insistence to the necessity of that creed and to give their allegiance to it. On that slide, I've asked you to think with me about at least the premise and the principle of a creed. The word creed, by its very nature, doesn't occur in the Bible, but so many particular references and principle are found to the, to the idea and to the thought. Let's look at a few of them. Let's begin in Jeremiah 10, 23. O Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. And so it is that a particular body of people who have comprised and who have generated this creed, well, notice it's of their thinking it requires their interpretation. It involves their judgment. And yet Jeremiah just reminded us, the way of man is not in himself. That is not a safe source of authority. You or I had better not rely on ourselves. We learned earlier today about the conscience. Well, clearly that premise goes rather closely with it. But this idea goes even further than that. Jesus made this statement. In Matthew 15, beginning in verse number 7, this was again somewhat along in the nature of His public ministry. But at that time, Jesus made a statement rather unforgettable. Allow me to read it to you and listen to the particular way Jesus phrases it. Ye hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people draweth nigh to me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Teaching for doctrines the commandments of men sounds like a creed. In other words, they teach what human thought has facilitated and what human thought has comprised, and yet they teach it as the doctrine of God. In that circumstance, Jesus said, Worship based upon that's vain, service based upon that is inadequate. 
service based upon that is insufficient. Interesting, isn't it, then to notice how that even 2,000 years ago there was not only the possibility but the real likelihood of people substituting what God said for what they said. May I suggest that kind of tendency is very strong. All of us like to think the way we have become comfortable thinking because that means I don't have to change. I'm the one that is, in fact, in the right. You need to change, and you need to redirect your thinking, you see. But yet, we have to appreciate that even in this matter of a creed or these principles that go with it, that's not only dangerous, it's completely unacceptable. At the very bottom of that slide, is it that the very idea behind what Paul stated in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 5? Paul said that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but that it should stand in the faith of God. Now, wasn't it true that they in Corinth, you see, heard a great deal of philosophy, and they were faced with a large number of the presentations of men, and Paul said, no, 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 your faith cannot stand in the wisdom of men. Because as you and I have learned, men are prone to be mistaken. Men are prone in their fallibility to be wrong. Our faith should never stand merely in that. No wonder Paul wrote the Corinthian epistles then to remind them that God has revealed this to me. Maybe one final observation. That text of Galatians 1 verses 8 and 9. In back-to-back verses, Paul said, If we or an angel from heaven, deliver any other gospel unto you than that which you've received, let him be accursed. There is nothing else, no creed of men, no thinking of men, no well-established advice of men. None of that is going to be acceptable. So far we've looked at four avenues of authority and none of which has been suitable. All of which, according to the Bible, are prone to be wrong. Save the best until last. What then is the right authority? What then is the thing to follow? What is a safe repository for counsel or advice? We've learned it's not the conscience. It's not family religion. It's not the matters connected to creeds. And it's not the majority. What is it? It's the Word of God. So just a few verses to close our lesson today, reminding us of the station, the place, the location, if you will, of the Word of God. Let's begin it like this in 2 Peter 1, verses 20 and 21. Isn't it true that there we appreciate Peter by inspiration saying this, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. This didn't come from men. It's not due to men. It doesn't rest upon the wisdom of men. It is not based upon the conscience of men. But rather, as Peter stated it, it was the Holy Spirit who infused into those people who wrote this the message which God wanted them to write. That's a beautiful thought, isn't it? No wonder in 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God 
and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Do you want to be perfect? Do I? Here's the way to make it happen. Here's the way that will lead to that kind of a life. Those two verses so far, the 2 Timothy passage as well as the 2 Peter passage, only beg our attention to another. It takes us to the scene of the judgment. I'm sure the whole thought of a judgment has often rested upon your mind and mine as we imagine what that day is going to be like when every single human being who has ever lived is going to stand in the presence of the God of heaven. Jesus the Christ is going to be there. And they are going to pronounce judgment upon every single spirit that's there present. Now in light of that, listen to the words of John 12, 48. Jesus speaking said, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my word hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. In other words, when the Lord Jesus, who shall serve as the judge that day, John 5, 22, when He delivers His verdict, He's going to thus compare your life and mine with what this says. He's not going to judge arbitrarily. He's not going to judge on the whims or feelings He might have. He's simply going to compare your life and mine with this. Did you and I live in harmony with it? Was our life an attempted and deliberate model of it? He'll know if we were careless or not. And if we were a faithful Christian, even the mistakes of our life, they will have been forgiven by His blood. But now if we didn't give any effort, if we didn't try, if we didn't thus make our effort to utilize His Word that way, Jesus said this Word will serve as our judge. It'll be the standard utilized at judgment. One last passage in Acts 20, 32. As Paul delivered that farewell address to the elders of the church at Ephesus, he spoke to them about the nature of the very difficult job they were going to have. They're going to arise, false teachers. They're going to lead people away from the faith. And in the midst of that presentation, he said, Sanctify. He drew them to the thought of sanctification and said, The one thing that will sanctify is the Word of God. It's what will set you apart. It's what will bring you to a position of rightness. And what Paul said to them then is exactly still true for us today. It's a sweet thing to remember Jesus saying, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. We have learned what the safe source of authority is. It's the Word of God. It could be that there's someone in this assembly today whose life has not been and is not now as it ought to be based on the Word of God. We want you to know that God loves you and with a proverbial tear in His eye, He is hoping so much that you will respond today. That you will leave this building with your spirit positioned acceptably and sweetly before Him. You see, the plan of salvation demands that you believe Jesus to be the Son of God, John 8, 24. You must repent of your sins, Luke 13, 3. Every person must confess the, the, the name of the Lord as promised to us in Matthew 10, verses 30 
38 to 39. And you must be baptized for the remission of your sins. Now that act of baptism is one in which the old man of sin is buried. And the new creature in Christ emerges out of that watery grave, ready to live for the Lord every day. Faithful to His calling, true to His word. If you're in that condition in life that you are living in that kind of situation, true to His word, continue that way until this life for you on this earth is no more. But if you aren't living that way today, maybe as a wayward child of God, you need to come back to your first love. Maybe you've started following some of these other sources we've learned today which are not safe, which are dangerous, and which will in fact be very dooming. Either of these things could well be the circumstance that could be descriptive of someone in this assembly today, and we would just wish to extend the Lord's invitation. We're going to stand in just a moment and sing this sweet song of encouragement that offers an opportune time for you to let it be known that you would wish to be right with God. If you're that alien sinner, we will help you to obey the Lord so you can put Him on in baptism. If you're a wayward child of God, we'll assist and make note and acknowledge your confession and repentance, and we'll pray to God. It could be that you need strength and fortitude, and if we could help you in that way too, we would just pray that God would fill your life with that kind of confidence and assurance, and that your faith might be strengthened, even as those apostles begged of the Lord that same in Luke chapter 17. Today, if we could be of some help in any of these ways, it's our goal to follow only this as our source of authority. And if we could study with you or help you do that, we invite you to come while we stand and sing.